Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined this week by Troy Harvey, who's the CEO of Passive Logic, which is a US-based business that's developing an autonomous platform for buildings. Company has got an amazing array of different investors that have plowed significant capital into the firm over the last couple of years that range from Brookfield on one side of things to NVIDIA and the US Department of Energy, among others, as well as AO PropTech, which is Europe's leading and largest venture capital fund in PropTech in Europe. Troy, fantastic to chat with you this morning. Thanks for coming on. Let's start a little bit with your background, because you've got quite a mixed background that spans both product design, engineering and architecture as well. And I'm interested how you got into this space because you're a bit of a child prodigy, weren't you, on some level, coming into uh, engineering and running big projects in your teens? Yeah, so sure. Thanks for having me on today. I think I had an unusual opportunity when I was quite young to join an engineering team when I was 15. I really ambitiously tried out for a role at an engineering firm that did product development that was, you know, within range of my high school at an early age and ended up getting that job. And where was this? Yeah, this would have been in Connecticut. So about uh, 60 miles from New York City, there was this historical, like smaller firms in the design industry, the industrial design firms, electronic design firms, product design firms that sort of clustered about that New York orbit. And this was in a small town called Reading, Connecticut. Yeah, probably a slightly bit different from Reading in the UK. Yeah, <laughs> a bit of a rural town, but within, you know, again, about an hour's drive of New York City. And that company did product development for a wide range of different clients. And so I came on initially when I was 15 as a engineering assistant where I would prototype the products and I would blow them up and try to figure out what makes them go wrong and how to fix them and assist the engineering team. And then over time, I had evolved into being the lead of doing their product development. And I guess the segue between that and what you're doing now, which is a lot more focused on helping the built environment fight climate change, the segue for that was a project you were doing around renewable energy. Yeah. So in around 2000, I had started working on some new technology and what are called supercapacitors. So there's batteries. Batteries store energy through chemical change, and there are capacitors which store energy in charge. And I was developing a very high energy density capacitor, about the same energy density as lead-acid batteries, but could be infinitely cycled without any degradation. And that was being funded by the U.S. Department of Energy. And we were building a lot of physics technology around how do we simulate these systems, how do we simulate buildings. And that was around the time that people started thinking about green buildings and how do we make high-performance buildings. And I'd shown that work to an architect and he said, wow, could you help me simulate some of my buildings? And that just quickly, in about a year's time, took over the whole business from our research around energy storage to how do we help the architecture and building community design and engineer these next generation buildings. Yeah, yeah. So how did that then morph into Passive Logic and how you met Jeremy, one of your founding engineers? Yeah, so what happened there was we would work with these architects building these awesome buildings, and then we'd see those buildings go into the ground and they would never meet their full potential. Now, as it happens, 
a decade later, I think the rest of the high performance and green building industry recognized this. You know, this was a giant challenge across the industry. So we asked the question, why? You know, why is this not working? Why do well-designed, well-engineered buildings not meet their potential? And we actually, again, partnered with the Department of Energy to look at this question. And what we found was there are maybe first a premise that we need to all understand as buildings and two problems that we need to go solve. The premise is, it turns out buildings are not just buildings, they are the world's largest and most complex robots. They don't move, but when you look at their complexity of what we call state space, and we can come back to this, how many sensors and controllable devices do they have? They're orders of magnitude more complex than anything else people make. So as an example, an autonomous vehicle made by Tesla might have 50 or 100 sensors, and it has three major controllables. It can steer, brake, and accelerate. But a midtown New York high-rise may have 500,000 sensors and controllables. So that's orders of magnitude more complex. So we're not facing the reality of what buildings are, is the level of complexity. And the tools that we have to manage that complexity are wholly insufficient. What are the key drivers of this? Well, control and commissioning. So control is how can we control those buildings so that they actually work and meet their potential? And commissioning is how do we make sure that those controls and the sensors and the systems are all tweaked and tuned properly so that they actually act in the way that they were meant to? So those were the two problems we identified. And we said, well, what if we take some of this technology around physics and simulation and the knowledge of what buildings are. And what if we put that right into the building so that the building itself knew what was going on within its own envelope and able to you know, make those decisions itself? And then in terms of the business that you set up, how did that then come into being? When was Passive Logic born? And what were some of the initial challenges that you set about solving? Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned you know, my co-founder, Jeremy. So he had hired my previous firm. He had previously helped build a company called Fusion.io, which built all the technology behind flash drive storage that we all now use in our phones and our laptops. At that point, they were focused at the server side. Companies like Amazon and Apple and, and Facebook who needed this very, very fast flash storage. And that was very, very successful outcome after the IPO'd. He was building a really cool house in the hill, this really modern house, all full of glass. And he hired our companies like, I'm trying to figure out how I'm gonna control this thing. And I've been looking at all the control systems out there. And it's like, where's the good stuff? I'm like, you're looking at what's out there. That's it. I said, but here's this thing that we're working on. This was about seven years ago. And I showed him this early work we had in physics-based autonomous control. And he said, wow, that's really exciting. Can I invest in that? And he came on as an investor. And then a few months later, it was just like, you know, this is just more interesting than what I'm doing at Fusion.io, which at that point was acquired by SanDisk, is like, it's more interesting what Fusion.io ever was going to be. I'd love to come on as a co-founder and, and help drive this. So we started Passologic about six years ago. Yeah, I and mean, that's a pretty interesting, really organic route in as well. That's fantastic. So in terms of where we are now, I suppose in the last year, a lot of people will have seen some of these big partnerships you've had with NVIDIA, Brookfield, two of the biggest ones that have been announced. And again, notable because they're such different 
businesses. Obviously, Brookfield's a global leader in real estate arena and NVIDIA. You know, all of us know from our gaming days, predominantly, you know, pretty much the world's biggest chip maker. So explain to people listening to this what an autonomous platform means because to some people in the real estate the pe the architecture well that sort of sounds like tech jargon yeah sounds like tech bro speak it doesn't mean anything in the real world so explain to people what that means in the real world yeah that's super important because we want to make sure that we're not talking about these ephemeral like concepts we don't talk about hard technology because that's what our company's all built on Let's go back to the vehicle versus the building space, because I think this gives us some footing. So back to, you know, a Tesla. So we talked about the complexity too. There's a vast gulf between the complexity. Now, one thing to point out is vehicles, as you all know, like it's been a slow path towards autonomy. And why is that? Well, vision is a really, really hard problem, especially in a chaotic outdoor environment. So in buildings, we don't have that problem, but we have this other problem that's very interesting. At, say, like Tesla headquarters, you can have 100 or 1,000 PhD engineers all training an autonomous platform for a vehicle, and they're testing millions of miles of text track, and they're training up these deep learning models, and then they harden those models, and it's not learning anymore at that point. You know, it has been learned. It is now just code, and then they drop that code into 100,000 vehicles all coming off the factory floor exactly the same. Let's talk about the hard problem in buildings and really everything else. Because we like to say, Tesla can have cars, that's great. They can have all the vehicles, that's great. What we're interested in is everything else. And that everything else, it tends to be in and around and part of buildings. And the problem in all of those applications, whether we're talking about buildings themselves or the business operations in buildings, is they're all one-offs. There are no two buildings with exact same architecture, location, systems, equipment, topologies, and so forth. And so you don't just need an autonomous platform. You need an autonomous platform generator. You need what we call generalized autonomy that you as a user can define what it is you have as a system, whether that's HVAC systems, heating, cooling, ventilation, energy systems, whether that's renewables, working with the grid interactivity, energy storage, whether it's things like lighting and the infrastructural pieces of like dynamic architectural elements, or whether that's the logistic systems of how do boxes come in one set of doors, track through the warehouse to be set on shelves that are then disaggregated into components that are maybe assembled into assemblies in manufacturing that get put into new boxes and go out other doors onto new trucks that end up mm -hmm. in other buildings. All of these problems are the things of the everyday that we need to not just automate, but how do we make it all work together? And that future world that all of the, I think, you know, companies are sort of waking up to is I've got hundreds of billion dollars of assets, or maybe some of the REITs have trillions of dollars of assets. How do I get from these pieces of earth with some structure on it to making these viable digital platforms that we can start plugging services into that make that a smooth streamlined experience for the occupants and the leasors and how do we manage these things in a future that is becoming But I guess one moment. challenge yeah. to that utopia could be well we've been doing it all okay for decades so so what Yeah so it turns out we haven't <laughs> 
So if we start like heading into the problem of buildings from a few different paths, where we started as... Yeah, let's break down a few problems because I think some people listening to this will go, well, hang on a second. I order my goods on Amazon, on Ocado. They come to me pretty happily in 24 hours. So thank you, Troy. But actually, mate, logistics is fine. And there'll be other people that say, hey, you know, I work in a shiny new building in Manhattan, in the center of London. And actually, it's quite cool. I don't need what you're selling. And there'll be other people that say, I just bought a new apartment in Battersea Power Station. Love the view. Looks lovely. All okay. So let's break down some of those problems and your challenge that everything isn't okay. And I think what you're speaking to is somewhat the fun part and interesting business of buildings where on the surface, we all live and work and go through these commerce locations all around buildings. But even sometimes building people themselves are not really aware of the secret life of buildings, like what's actually happening under the covers to make this all happen. So we can tear that down in a few directions. So I'll start with where we started as a company. We started going out to the installers of building automation systems. So the companies that are responsible for making buildings go. So every building at the core has to have a control system. It's in most buildings just functionally. It's just a fundamental requirement. And then by jurisdiction, in most jurisdictions, it is just a legal requirement. So if I go to the building automation installers, the people who today use Honeywell or Johnson Control, Siemens and Schneider, it turns out Things were not okay and they haven't been okay for a while. And they have a a whole slew of problems. So because that complexity to product mismatch that they have, they're struggling to make these buildings go even to old standards, let alone where do we go from here in a future IoT world. And that's a problem because right now, legislators and lawmakers in the US and across Europe and in England as well are saying, if your buildings don't meet this standard by X date, we're going to tax you. Right. And that's coming from maybe even another angle of how do we meet ESG standards, right? And there we can say, and that's why we got into Passologic in the first place, is we could see in our own work that you could design the coolest buildings in the world, and they just were missing the potential of their efficiency and energy utilization by large margins. In fact, on average, we know from the Department of Energy's own studies that the U.S. building stock is missing its potential by 40% of what the energy efficiency of those buildings could be, not changing anything about the buildings, just controlling and commissioning them properly, would save 40% of all the building energy. And buildings are 42% of energy. That one thing right there is by far the biggest energy opportunity in the world. It's not like turning cars from gas to electric. It's like getting rid of all cars, right? And so that truth- So that's the equivalent emission- All cars. Yeah, so that's like removing cars from the equation. So that alone is this huge thing. Essentially just by turning stuff off at the right times, essentially. Uh, Not necessarily even turning stuff off or changing our experience or making us less comfortable, any of that. It's just how do you achieve those same goals in the most effective way given the equipment you have? And this is that secret life of buildings that – buildings inside of them to heat and cool and do all the things that we're asking them to do have effectively in the basement or maybe somewhere in the upper stories, these whole engines that make that happen. And the engines are pieces and parts that are all being coordinated by a control system somewhere. Hmm. 
And so essentially, yeah. if I was to describe what you're doing, then it's a bit like giving everybody a plug-in that Formula One teams have, where Formula One teams can track a car going around a circuit for one and a half minutes, and they can track any problem that occurs anywhere on that car. Now have some data to go, well, it's the front left tire that's got more degradation than it should have, so we'll do that change, we'll switch a different tire out for it. And essentially what you're giving people is that plug-in. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, but it's uh, maybe a little bit more than that because that is maybe the approach of saying, oh, I get data and now I need a person to go do something. What if the building itself could recognize those things in real time and adjust for them? So it could change its own tires. Yes, so it could change its own tires. So you have, let's just say as an example, a building in just some simple set of use cases, heating and cooling, that if it only knew its own occupancy at the right time, that it could heat up for the occupants when they need it. And then at night when the people leave the commercial building, that it knows when people have left, it could let itself cool down just enough, given the current weather, that it knows how to heat back up by the time people get there in the lowest energy consuming way, which means like often there's the notion of staging where you have the lower the staging, the more efficient you are. The higher the staging, the less efficient you are. So you want explain to- what that means to people that aren't engineers. Yeah. So let's say you have a heat pump. You know, we have this move towards electrification. We're going away from gas. Well, a heat pump run in stage one, which is let's say it can give out half its heat capabilities. That might be what we'd say has a coefficient of performance of five hundred, which means it's basically five hundred percent efficient. And if I want to get to 75 or 80% of my heat capacity, it drops down to 300%. And then if I want to get to 100% of my heat capacity, I'm turning on electric resistant heating, which it goes to 100%. So I have between maybe half capacity and full capacity, a five to one ratio of how efficient I am. So driving this just right, based on my occupancy, based on weather, based on the current electrical costs in the dynamic market, can be not only the difference of 5x on your efficiency, but it can avoid whole like congestion in the electric market where you might have outages. So put very simply, one example could be keeping the heat on low during the night when heat costs is much lower rather than pumping everything on peak at 7am in the morning when everyone else is using the grid. Right. And for that to happen, you have to be able to know the future. And to know the future, all controls for the most part, you know, very close to 100% of all controls that are used today only know the past. They only react to what has happened. And so they're saying when a your thermostat or your BMS system goes click effectively and turns on heat, there's a truth that is there that your control system is reacting to your building, which means the building is in charge. The building system cannot make smart decisions. You can't have a smart building in that configuration. So you have to have buildings that can think for themselves about the future and then plan for the future and then start controlling around the future. Yeah, yeah. So how does that work in practice then? So give me a real world scenario where passive logic is being used within a building because you've obviously got the platform, but you've got different products as well that go alongside that. Yeah, so you have to start with Where's your fundamental platform for all this, right? And since the 100% guarantee will be there is a control system, 
Well, let's start there. Let's start there with the requirement. And then once you have the platform, you can build that platform around how do we make all the rest of the services plug and play so that we can get to this future of buildings that all of the REITs and all of the actors around the building market want. So what we found when we went out to that community of people who do building automation, whether it's at the high end, what we call integrators in the business, the people who do BMSs, or at the low end, which is the vast majority of it is these HVAC firms. They said, holy cow, you're the first people to walk through our doors in 15 years with anything new. And we have all these problems. And those problems start with, they might have 200 people on staff that are all competent, capable technicians, but only one of them knows how to program a BMS, right? And that person is probably 55 years old and a few years from retiring. And this is a scarcity of skills. So it's not just how do we make them optimal once we get them in buildings, how do you get them in buildings in the first place? And so if we change the paradigm, if we go away from this traditional like 1970s programming model, that's like if sensor do, you know, light bulb, then we can switch to a digital twin model. And that digital twin model can, instead of describing how things are done, describe what things are. And we can make that something that's easily consumed by your average technician. So draw what a boiler connected to a pump, connected to a buffer tank. These are the things that they know. Give them a tool that automates, not just automation, but automates their own workflows. And as they build up these drawings of, here's what a building looks like, here's where the sensors are in that building, here's what the systems look like they're gonna control. And doing that all with digital twins, we're not just speeding up their workflow by 10X, they're building the definition, the digital twin of the building for the rest of us to then plug in the things that we need in buildings. Yeah. So and at what point does this get considered? Is this then something that should sit alongside what an architect does at design stage? Or is this something that will always have to be done after that? Or is it done before? No. So what we see as a continuity, if you now have a digital twin, of a building and we maybe come back to defining exactly what that means. But if we have a digital twin of a building that can flow from architect. In fact, it can flow from the manufacturer equipment to the architect that uses those things in their designs, being able to have a very fluid generative design environment as an architect that's easier to use than the current workflow, hand that off to the engineer. The engineer can use the same digital twin to then define the systems that they want to be controlling, hand that off to the installer, hand that off to the commissioner, to the owner operator, to the maintenance management, and nothing changes. It's like, what if you made BIM, like building information management, part of the knowledge of the workflow and the building so that the building always knows its own state of its own BIM. It has like operational BIM. And that is one of the promises of digital twins, but it can happen at any point in the process, whether it's retrofit or whether it's right at the design. I mean, let's focus on retrofit because I mean, that's the biggest opportunity because I think well, clearly in terms of the amount of older buildings we have, but also from a practical perspective, lots of people will say, well, hang on, that all sounds great and nice and easy to do if I'm designing a building from scratch, but how does that function with the plethora of buildings from the 60s, 70s, and 80s that still make up the bulk of the building stock somewhere like New York or London. Yeah, so I think this is entirely right, right? 
somewhere around 80% of your workflow is going to be retrofit. So we really enable both. New construction, you'd be passive logic throughout in a building. In retrofit, so we're talking digital twins. In a retrofit building, you're going to have really old sensors. They're probably going to be analog. Maybe you have some digital stuff. Maybe you want to throw in some IoT. And that's great. But the sensors aren't enough, right? You can't just have sensors. You can't just have IoT devices. That's information. But we need something in the building to take all of that perspective, whether it's from old analog sensors or new IoT devices, and generate this full worldview of that building, what's going on in that building, and be the smart proxy for the old sensors and be the language proxy for the new sensors that may speak this tower of babble different types of languages and protocols. And then formulate that not just into data, but into information and then be able to take action on that information. Because at the end of the day, people really don't care about data, right? Like you and I don't care about data. What we really want to buy is some kind of action. And you need this brain for the building that all these things can connect into. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the challenge, I suppose, for many people, there's a couple of, there's lots of challenges, but let's focus on two of them. The first one is that when you say BIM, building information management, when you say digital twins, both of those phrases make most people's eyes glaze over, firstly. Secondly, there's no alignment of interest between all the groups that have a role in this process, right? The architect, once he or she has designed that building, they're out of there. They don't get paid past the point of planning in many cases, and they certainly don't get paid after the point of completion. Similarly, your engineer, similarly, your planning consultant, and often the investor will be out of the door the minute the building has been stabilized and leased out. So there's no alignment of interest between the investor who might be there on day one versus that investor that might be there on year 10. That's right. That's right. So let's try and focus on how you square some of those circles, because I think ultimately, you know, the way I see this, and I think you know, your observations on the tech sphere and on the status quo are quite correct. You know, this is a backwards analog industry. And I suppose the equivalent for many people would be, I suppose, the way we used to build websites. I mean, I'm trying to think of very simplified analogies. So forgive me for things like Formula One that most people find deadly boring. But, you know, ultimately, I'm trying to sort of think of a way to bring this home to people. And people will remember a time where you used to have to spend tens of thousands of pounds on a website, whereas now you've got off-the-shelf systems that will do it all for you. And essentially, you're trying to do a similar thing in building management, where you've got a platform that can help people that aren't necessarily tech experts to do all this sort of stuff. That's right. Yeah. So you're entirely right. So BEM is a acronym that makes no sense to most people, but it's what architects talk every day. The installers, the techs, they don't really know BIM from anything else, but they know BMS and the architects don't know anything about BMS. So two theses here. The first is, while there is this goal around climate and that we have to solve it and that this is the biggest climate opportunity in the marketplace, our thesis is we don't sell that. We just give you that whether or not you care. Because if people have to think in ROIs, you're going to lose 90% of the market. I want to show you something, no matter whether you're an architect, an engineer, an installer, in the first half an hour, you've already won and everything else comes for free. So for the installer, I can show you with our Autonomy Studio product, what you do in eight weeks in a half an hour. 
the conversation's over, right? Like we don't have to debate whether we're better than the incumbent old stuff. You've already won. You've gotten your ROI in the first half an hour. And building energy efficiency is going to come for free. If you're the architect, I'm going to give you our building studio product where you're going to able to generatively design things in a way you can't do in Revit. And you will be able to like start in digital twins and then convert that to Revit and then convert that to our workflow to enable all these cool ideas you have as architects to always get value engineered out. You're going to see the value right away. And as an engineer, the same thing is true, right? And so we have a thesis that don't try to like get everybody to agree. Instead, give each player something that they can tangibly walk away with for their own value that Passologic gives them a win right away. And now I don't have to get you to convince, you know, four other actors in the building process to all, you know, agree together. Yeah. I mean, going back to how the business began, what were some of the things you did with Jeremy's house that got him excited, that became the foundations of Passive Logic? So a lot of those projects that we were doing at the time were these high performance buildings where you had a combination of renewables, energy storage, advanced HVAC systems that maybe had multiple modes that went from passive heating and cooling all the way to active heating and cooling. And it was what we call a systems of systems problem, right? So today, the way control works in order for people to even comprehend it, even the smartest people, we break down all the systems into one control loop, right? Like it's like this one light switch will control that one light or this one thermostat will control that one zone of heat. But it never considers, even with a multi-million dollar incumbent system, never considers that there's a whole nother zone, there's another room right next to you that has its own temperature sensing and its own heat or maybe cooling. And those two may be interacting together so that there's this relationship between all of these things. All of these things are interacting in a giant system of lighting and energy and energy storage and renewables and uh, heating and cooling, all, you know, comfort. And so that's a web, a web of relationships. And the thing that Jeremy's house was very much this web of relationships of how can you under all these dynamic conditions in a building that is all made of glass in a climate that can literally swing 100 degrees in one day, a, a swing season where you can have 100 degree days and then like, you know, 20 or so degree night, that house under all conditions and all spaces could be comfortable. And that's really what the fundamentals of architecture is. It's like we're making spaces for people, spaces for humans. It's a human experience. And so that's the company through and through. It's not just how we control around human experience. It's how do we build products around each of these different human experiences that you have as an architect, as an installer, as an engineer, as an owner operator. Hmm. So what was the basis then for coming together with NVIDIA? Because that's obviously something that will have caught many people's attention, uh, a fascinating tie up and massive congratulations to you for pulling it off. Explain to people why a company best known for making gaming graphic chips wants to get involved with digital twins. Well, there's a couple of contexts that are helpful here. So NVIDIA came to us. It wasn't the other way around. And they came to us because they started thinking about investing in the broader ecosystem of AI. And from their words, they had 
spent the last nine months filtering through hundreds of companies in the world who are doing AI and looking for the most exciting ones. And Passive Logic was their first investment, their first company that they came to said, we're really excited about what you're doing. So why is this? Why is the ninth largest company in the world, like coming to Passive Logic into the buildings market, you know, what's driving that? So a few things. First, on the marketplace, NVIDIA comes from a graphics chip background. And then about a decade ago, they started realizing that they were the most powerful processing in general purpose compute for certain types of problems. And one of those was AI, and they've become this cornerstone of AI. And they saw that their last decade has been fueled largely by things like autonomous vehicles. And they said, you know what's bigger than the vehicles industry? The buildings industry. It's much bigger than, you know, the buildings industry is at least two times by dollars, by investment, by energy, by all these different factors. And so what we've seen happening in the autonomous vehicles industry, and that's like really shifted the mindset of the whole vehicle industry we're just at the beginning with the buildings industry, and we think the opportunities are much, much bigger here than they are in transportation. And they did too. And so they came to us. And one of the things that they were excited about in Passive Logic is not only how we're addressing the buildings industry with all these different products to build, not just the Thomas platform, but the whole ecosystem. And how could you actually pull this off in an industry that you're just not going to solve it with a point solution? but the depth to which we were solving the problem. It's not just the products, we're building whole new frameworks. So the AI frameworks like TensorFlow from Google or PyTorch from Facebook, who are, these are the, the big AI frameworks. They weren't ever gonna solve this problem. We built new frameworks to be able to solve these kinds of problems. And then all the way down to the compiler, we started a project at Google Brain with some collaboration with Google Brain four years ago on developing new compiler technology to enable these new ideas we had in what we call post-deep learning. And so that sort of depth of the technology stack, the degree to which we built a very big, broad IP base, they were very excited about. So I guess for non-tech people, that's basically, I mean, let's maybe just sort of disassemble some of that statement. Explain to people what that deep tech element is, because again, just as lots of people don't care about data quality and many people look at tech businesses and, and they just think, oh, this is a tech firm. They don't necessarily distinguish between somebody that might just be creating a new web interface versus someone that's actually creating a whole new deep tech infrastructure for something, which is exactly what you're doing. Yeah, I think the things that you're hitting on are super important because yeah, when we started, we basically defined Autonomy Studio, the application from the user's point of view, this is how the world should work. And so we designed that. And then we said, okay, the technology doesn't exist to make this possible. So you have to go invent the technology. And we just kept on going deeper and deeper and deeper. And one of the core concepts that we're working on here at PassiveLogic is a kind of a technology around these deep digital twins. So I want to talk about a bit of the AI world for the last decade and what's happened there and what's sort of really changed the game. And then where do we need to go from here? Because I think these concepts are tangible by the average person. So people on your podcast may have heard of deep learning. A little bit of background to this. So AI was a hot happening world in the technology space until 1986. And then boom, all of a sudden, all investment dried up in AI in 1986, and it's known as the AI winter. And it didn't reemerge until about 2012. And anybody who was talking to AI in that period was essentially treated like a crackpot. 
And there's a few people around today who are incredibly famous because they were some of these crackpots who are still willing to like explore and develop these technologies and help drive that world to reemerge in 2012. And what happened in 2012 was every year there was a machine learning contest for recognizing pictures of cats. And in about 2011, we were in the mid 20%. Like you show a picture of a cat and you had a 25% chance of the machine learning detecting the picture of cats. And what happened in 2012 was the first deep learning implementation that basically jumped by tens of percents in its quality. What happened there? Well, a lot of people, and even if you talk to AI experts, will tell you neural nets. But neural nets actually have been around since the 1950s. So, the, so wait, in what, English, what's a neural network? A neural network is basically what if you make a computer that is trying to mimic the brain, mimic the neurons in the brain and the interconnections in the brain. And it's kind of what we think of as an analog computer. So those neural nets have been in continuous experimentation since the 50s. The hard problem neural nets was to say, recognize just a picture of a cat, you couldn't do it with just 10 neurons. You had to do it with like 10 million neurons. And to train 10 million neurons, we didn't know how to train 10 million neurons. That was the hard problem. And while the resulting infrastructure was neural nets to recognize pictures of cats, it was actually this other technology that made it possible called differentiable computing. And I'll try to describe this in a really tangible way. So let's say you have a picture of a cat on a screen and that screen has a million pixels. You have to have a million neurons for each one of those pixels that is gonna recognize each pixel and then take that data and it's gonna go through layers of neurons till it gets to one neuron and the output that's like cat, no cat. That last neuron can do one of two things. Can either say, that's a cat, that's not a cat. So it turns out if you take those 10 million neurons and you try to tweak and tune them and get them to all be set up right to recognize pictures of cats, that takes the largest computer in the world, 100, 200,000 years to try to get that all tweaked and tuned. So that was never gonna solve the problem. But oddly enough, and it's conceptually simple, if you just reverse that problem, show a picture of a cat and look at that one output and say cat, no cat, and you just train it, that's a cat. And then you do what we call back propagation. You take the output as the input and then get them 10 million inputs as the output. All of a sudden you go from, I can solve that in a hundred thousand years to I can solve that maybe in a few hours. So that differential programming. So it's like saying it's easier to grate cheese than to take all the grated cheese and put it back together. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that was the real revolution that's been hiding under the covers in deep learning is this thing that enabled it. But it's always been kind of a duct tape hack in these products like TensorFlow from Google or PyTorch from Facebook to do a certain size problem. What if we could take that idea and generalize it? So anything you could code could be solved and trained this way. And so that's what we've been working on in the compiler level is generalized differentiability. And then on top of that, we've built this new world where we've kind of fused together these ideas from neural nets, this brain-like functions together with the underlying digital twin physics so that for the user, I can just give you digital twins. They're just pictures. Here's a picture of a pump. Here's a picture of a fan. Here's a picture yeah, of a yeah. well, I, I think many people will be really pleased now that you can get the automated 
gallery of cat photos on your iPhone, occasionally <laughs> with all the silly music. Moving on from cat pictures, one of the other really interesting partnerships that you've had announced over the last year has been with Brookfield, yeah. one of the biggest investors in real estate and infrastructure globally. Talk us through that partnership. What have they sought to achieve by investing and partnering with Passive Logic? Yeah, so this again is a bit remarkable because Brookfield usually doesn't invest this early. And what they're really interested in as the second largest owner of building assets in the world is how do we get to these buildings as digital platforms? And there's some other unannounced partnerships here that are of a similar scale. And there's this core underlying interest that buildings today are spot of earth with some structure on top. And you're watching the growth of that value of that going up, you know, some percentage per year. But what's happening in those buildings is usually orders of magnitude more value than the building itself. And a lot of that is the service. Well, so some investors might disagree with that, but I'll let you finish the point. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you take JLL's rubric, for instance, they might say the energy is like three bucks a square foot. The real estate's leased at 30 bucks a square foot. The value of the people sitting on that real estate's $300 a square foot. And the value of the services sitting on top of that is $3,000 a square foot. And so how can we access, how can we unlock that value of those services? And then the value of the people, like how can we make them more effective, more efficient, more comfortable? So that would be a particular perspective on that. And so if you're gonna get there, you need a digital platform for your buildings. And that digital platform needs to understand your buildings and be able to then take that understanding and provide a high level explanation to the services you plug into. So you might be interviewing all kinds of different companies in the prop tech space. And in that world, I guarantee almost every one of them has the problem of if they want to plug in their service, whatever it is, maybe it's maintenance management, maybe it's energy analytics, you know, how do we get food delivered more efficiently for lunchtime to a group of employees that understands what is the current occupancy that day. Whatever that service is, has a big problem, which is, okay, what do you plug into? Because the current building automation platforms, it's like plugging into a 1970s mainframe. It's not like plugging into high-level APIs on an iPhone. So every single company in the prop tech space that has to plug into buildings, they find before they can charge you $5 per person per month, they have to charge the CFO $50,000 to integrate it into that building. And every building is a one-off integration project. So how do you get rid of that integration? Just make it plug and play, just like an app on your iPhone. I just click and I got it. Yeah. So similarly, in some respects to how WordPress has become just a basic standard for website design. How do you make that plug and play so that you can enable this whole other raft of startup companies and technology companies and the building owners themselves who you might have close to a trillion dollars of building assets. And it's the only business in the world where you have that much invested and it's all black boxes. You have actually zero information about how those things are operating. Mm. And why don't you think, I mean, going back to the partnership with Brookfield, why don't you think investors have really, as in real estate investors, why don't you think they've paid much attention to this over the years? Why has it waited until now for people to start caring? Well, I think sometimes the most obvious things 
they sit in front of us and you get this long history of people lagging in the industry. Going back to the Tesla analogy, the same thing was happening back then, right? At turn of the, the century, there was no sense of all these old auto manufacturers that the world was about to change. They were just plodding along, doing what they'd always done and assumed that the world would continue to stay the same. And when we started pitching Passive Logic six years ago, you know, Jeremy had very a successful startup. It was for some very large investors, the biggest multiplier they had ever had in terms of investment in to exit out. And we had access to Sand Hill Road and we would go up and down Sand Hill Road and talk about buildings. And those investors were like, buildings, what are you talking about? And we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, buildings, like largest industry in the world. And they're like, I don't get it. And we're like, yeah, 25% of world GDP. And they're like, you know, do you got a consumer thing for me? And, you know, we literally had some investors say to us at the time, he's like, I get what you're talking about. This is awesome. But frankly, all my partners are complete idiots. All they understand is web click-throughs and advertisements. And they don't understand technology anymore because we've had this like sort of Satisfaction of the investment industry that, you know, where there's maybe not as many technologists in those partner meetings to say, like, how do we get to the new platforms as opposed to how do we just make advantage of the old platforms? Yeah. And by sassification, you're referring to SAS as in software as a service. So forgive the acronym. But your point basically is the tech space to some degree has become dumbed down by people wanting simple stuff that's very simple to understand. It doesn't actually require too much risk. It doesn't require so much thought and isn't quite so hard to do. Yeah, and I think there's a business aspect that we went and made platforms, right? Somebody did the hard tech work. Apple made iPhones. We built these web platforms full of a lot of technology. Those are new platforms that then it became relatively cheap to go in and take old ideas, just wrap them up for a digital world and get that to scalability pretty quickly. They were niche, they were thin on tech, but there was a lot of territory to go like eat up. But once you subdivide those platforms, you know, project management apps, there's at least 300 of them on the web today, right? Like once you've subdivided that territory on a platform, so fine grain, you now have to say, where's the next platforms that we haven't really started exploiting these opportunities that really need to be solved in new marketplaces? And industrial applications are one of them that are, they're big, they're deep, and they haven't really been touched yet. Mm. So I guess when a lot of people now might look at digital twins, they might be thinking about Facebook shift into the metaverse and scratching their heads about that because that whole shift from Zuckerberg hasn't exactly gone down well with their investors. I'm interested in your views on the metaverse and what Passive Logic's doing aligns or doesn't align with that. Is that a bet that you think will pay off? And is it a landscape that's going to help or hinder what you're doing? Yeah. So I'll be transparent. I'm not a big believer in the metaverse kind of notion. This is at least the fourth iteration of the same idea that we've seen, you know, this is like The Sims and Second Life. And back in the 90s, there was some VR implementations that like, you can't start with, hey, companies like Passive Logic are doing digital twinny things, and therefore we should do it too. And let's take just some conceptual idea and then roll that up into like a metaverse or digital twin notion. 
because that's what's expected as a large company to be relevant in the next century without a plan, right? Why is it useful, right? Like, you know, in Zuckerberg's case, the question of, is this something that consumers actually want? Like, start from where is the use case and work backwards. We see the same thing in the building industry, quite frankly. Um, we have had a lot of the big incumbents, you know, come to our office and talk to us. And, you know, it's funny to see them from a year ago, not knowing what a digital twin was to taking all their old stuff that they've had for 20 years, putting in a new fresh box and labeling it digital twin. That's not actually helpful for the marketplace, right? It's actually confusing for the customers to be able to distinguish, like is BIM in the cloud? Like CAD in the cloud, is that digital twins or is that just CAD in the cloud? Oh, yeah. But it goes back to my point earlier about data because I, and I know this from you know, some of the businesses that I've worked with over the years, a couple of businesses that I've helped grow and exit to big companies. And what I've learned, you know, the 10 years of running Blackstock and my work before that is that a lot of people don't distinguish between good and bad data. If you say to a lot of people, here's your data, they'll go, well, great, thank you very much. That's my data. They don't necessarily care about the cleanliness of the data, about the quality of it, the authenticity, the efficacy doesn't matter for a lot of people. And that's why I think, you know, coming back to your point earlier, you're talking to a lot of people whose infrastructure hasn't changed since the 70s. So it's no surprise that they're not going to know the difference between CAD in the cloud and something which might not quite be the same digital twin that you offer. To them, it's a digital twin. Do you know what I mean? So my challenge to you would be, I suppose, if you're dealing with an uneducated market, then the theater, unfortunately, is probably more important to you than it should be. Yeah, so I think we always start again with, like, what do you need? What is the user experience you're trying to enable? So fundamentally, we're saying, maybe if you're a building owner, you have to get to ESG. How are you going to get there? If you're an installer, you're going to be like, you have to actually install these things with the workforce you have and be able to democratize it out of Today's big automation companies, they're basically fighting over 3% of the commercial building market and they haven't even thought about like industrial or multifamily. So how do we get from that to 100% of all buildings? Those are the needs, right? And then how do we get to that need? Well, we need an autonomous platform that can actually understand this and democratize it, make it easy to do. Well, how do we get there? Well, you actually need a digital twin language that you can build generalized autonomy on top of. That's how things get useful. They don't get useful because you decided to label it digital twins. It's like, it's designed for a certain outcome, right? And that outcome was, what is it you need? And it's not like actually waving the flag of the technology as much as we're the nerdiest group of people you've ever met in terms of technologists. But at the end of the day, we build technology for a specific purpose. And that purpose starts first and the technology is then designed and developed and innovated and are indeed to meet the purpose. Yeah. So if I'm a large company, say, I mean, let's take multifamily, because that's obviously been a huge boom in the US over the last mm. 25 years. It's now a growing, if still nascent industry in the United Kingdom and across Europe, it's also growing nicely. But I've got a, a 300 unit apartment building and I'm an investor like a Graystar or Macquarie, someone like that. What do I get? So I have access to your platform. I, I get different products installed in my building, but who then runs that? Who's the point person in my business? So if you're a REIT and you're building a new building, right? The first thing you might understand about Logic from our conversation, we started with the guys who do. So when we went and started looking at this marketplace and what we saw all the startups doing, it's like, what do you want is the biggest, baddest REIT that's going to 
buy your product and install it in their belly. Oh, wait, REITs don't actually do that. They're largely financial institutions, right? So you're probably five to seven steps away from the person who actually makes the decision. So that's why we started with the HVAC firms and the installers of automation, because whether or not you have a digital plan as a REIT, I can go to the guy who's making the technology decisions of what to put in the building and make his life easier, happier, faster, and then enable him to use a lot of different workforce actors that he has on hand so that he can scale his business, right? Now he's choosing passive logic instead of a traditional control platform to put in the building to solve his own problems. You as the REIT may not come on board to a technology strategy for a while and then realize, oh, I've got passive logic in my building. I can just go up to that interface and I can add services. Oh, maybe we should do this in the rest of our buildings. Now you get to the more advanced REIT and they might say, now we have a technology strategy. We've got to make a digital platform so that we can deliver services to our buildings. We can efficiently maintain and manage because everybody has a maintenance management crunch happening. How do you make that efficient? How do you see what's actually happening in the building so the buildings can tell you? You're not seeing maintenance guys out to figure out if buildings are working right. The buildings are telling you, hey, this thing's starting to degrade. You might want to send somebody out here to replace it in the next month before it becomes a crisis. How do you make that a reality? Then you might start as a REIT deciding, okay, we're going to take on a digital plan across our REIT for getting sort of operational insights into our buildings. And then we're doing it around the platform you already need, which is your control platform. You're going to have to have it anyways. And if that's the same price as what you might already be paying for to get dumb controls, well, then that's a dead simple decision to make. Does that sort of workflow of understanding, like, let's start with the people who actually do the work, right? And then we're working up, sandwiching it from the top, from the companies who are then making strategic decisions across their asset portfolios and working inward from there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense because I think if you go into the C-suite of many companies and say, hey, I want to help you rewrite your business plan, they're going to look at you and go, well, hang on, there's several things that could happen here. This could make me, A, have to fire loads of people, which is going to make me look bad when I'm about to retire in three years, or it's going to cost me loads of money, which is going to also make me look bad to my shareholders, and shit, I'm going to have to retire in three years without that bonus. Or three, what you're bringing me is going to prove that my strategy for the last five years has been totally wrong, and, oh dear, I'm not going to get my bonus. So for most bosses, right, technological innovative disruption is a lose-lose option, right? That's right. Because they're not going to be here in 2030 when all of these net zero commitments are supposed to be implemented. They're going to be long gone. Most bosses at big companies of any kind. So I think that's the problem that a lot of innovators have is that there's not an alignment of interests often between existing management and the need to innovate and overhaul. And by the way, you know, having the opportunity to talk to all the major incumbent building automation companies, they're exactly the same story, right? Like they could boot up a passive logic like Skunk Works within their company, hire hundreds of people to build more R&D around how do we make future products for this industry. But that would cost them millions and millions of dollars. And by the time they get fired, 
they would have just looked like they put a net negative on the balance sheet with nothing to deliver in that three-year time frame because it's going to take longer than that, right? So that's why you see a lack of innovation in the Fortune 500s around this problem. When we go to the building site, right, you have to start with the people who it's their job. That could be the maintenance management guy. It usually starts with the actual automation installer whose job, and that's why we talk in nerdy terms, because he actually cares, right? Like his job is to deal with the technology and be technology A versus B. And if A is one of a half a dozen companies that are all like, you know, you know shovel them pound for pound, they're all about the same thing. And B is like actually solves problems that are like getting them to all these things that they're being actively asked to do, but they can't figure out how to do it on the old platforms. And I can sell it to you at a similar price point and make you more efficient and fast. We don't even have to like get anybody else's buy-in, right? Like it's going to go into the building. So it might not be sexy starting with the maintenance people and the HVAC folk, but it's a route in. And ultimately, it's something that the investors and the C-suite should really be focusing on because they've got a massive guillotine coming up the road in the form of carbon taxes, in the form of other regulation that's going to basically make their businesses unviable unless they're reining in their carbon spend, reining in their energy spend and reporting in a much more transparent fashion. Right. I think this is a really important point. We've really focused a lot on technology inclusion here as a core concept because we think the construction engineer industry as a whole some very large percentage, 70 plus percent of product in a multi-trillion dollar product market for construction is actually decided by a guy in a blue jumpsuit who drives that day to a supplier and says, you know, give me a thing. It's not being decided up the stack. And so this does not work like the technology industry that this is a CEO transaction. Usually you have to excite the workforce that's actually making those decisions. And if you don't do that, you're just not going to get, you know, really these technology leaps in the building industry. They're not going to happen because it's like as if AT&T forced us all to have iPhones instead of getting customer buy-in and then bubbling it up to the people above that that's what we wanted as the consumers, right? You're not going to force down into the marketplace from the reads down to the installers. You're going to have to bubble up. Hmm. It's an interesting route in. So look, I'm conscious of time, but I mean, you've raised about $80 million. Yeah, that's right. How much more are you going to have to raise to kind of get where you're needing to go? And what does the next year, two years look like for Passive Logic? Because it's a pretty tough time right now for anyone in the tech space. Valuations have been hit, share prices have been shattered, dreams have also been shattered in some cases but what you're doing is a relatively defensive play right because regulation and scrutiny of people's energy performance and environmental performance it's only going to tighten and grow look here's the way that i think our investors we have some of the biggest investors in the world with addition leading rb and then you know these triangulation to other strategic partners and what we see is the building industry is not changing, right? That's a trajectory that's insulated from the general like up and downs on the micro scale of the next year or two or three of whether there's a downturn. Nobody's returning to caves, right? We're all gonna continue to use buildings, be in buildings, and those investors along that path see that long-term view. So in Passive Logic is a company that is building a very big IP base. We've filed 
100 patents in just the last two years. And what we see the opportunity for and our investors are strongly backing is how do we build that building automation company of the last 100 years? The existing names you know, they've been around for the prior 100 years and their time is up. So our mandates are a little different. We're growing. We are plan on tripling in size over the next two years in terms of our employee count. We're opening a European office. We're trying to build that broader strategy of what is a modern autonomous platform for buildings and all the system and products around that over the next several years. We have a long runway in the bank, but we're also aggressively pursuing a strategy that will require additional raises to go see that worldwide footprint as a worldwide player in the building automation space. Mm. I mean, critics may argue that you're trying to boil the ocean. What would you say to them? I'd say that in the building industry, there is no solving this with a point solution. There has to be an ecosystem play to satisfy the needs across. And from when we have the opportunity where there's a lack of innovation in a lot of different parts of the building industry, we can get the backing to stand up whole teams to go solve those gaps, those holes in the industry. And that's something where we can innovate across. I think we are somewhat unique as there's not a lot of benchmarks of a startup company co-developing so many products simultaneously. But it is, in fact, one of the reasons that we get so much industry interest and collaboration and strategy because there's just nobody else, even in our orbit, of what Passologic's doing. And we've been successful to date, right? Those products are not concepts, they're not visions, they're actual beta products that people are interacting with and using. Mm, No, absolutely. And so if I'm an investor, an architect, or an HVAC firm listening to this, how do I get in contact? How do I get a demo of what you're doing? How do I interact with Passive Logic? Feel free to come to PassiveLogic.com. You can sign up to get our newsletter when we'll be releasing certain products to the open market. We will have our big show at Ashray's AHR, which is in February. And uh, if you're on the HVAC side, certainly come and see us. If you're an investor, I'm sure you're creative enough to figure out how to get in contact with me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, Troy Harvey, CEO, Passive Logic, fantastic to meet you, fantastic to talk to you on PropCast today. You can obviously go to PassiveLogic.com. Do subscribe to PropCast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts from, just search PropCast. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you again soon.